um, the title for our series in the book of Acts. And it is called The Unstoppable Mission of the Church. The Unstoppable Mission of the Church. And so it's going to take us quite um, many weeks to go through that. There it is, the Acts of the Apostles. It's under there. The Unstoppable Mission of the Church. And uh, you know what? Uh, you're going to... We're going to learn so much together in this study. The book of Acts has everything in it. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of stories. There's a lot of interesting characters that we're going to meet throughout our time together in the book of Acts. But what's really cool is that this really sets us up as the church. Because this gives us a glimpse, this book does, into the beginnings of the church. And sometimes we, we forget that or we take for granted that what we do here on Sunday and what we, we call ourselves our identity, remember that from our study in Ephesians, that we are the church. See, this building is the church building, the building that we meet in. But in Scripture, it's very plain and clear that we are the church. And Jesus says He will build His church. And that is actually like an ongoing process. So He will continue to build us, to grow us from the inside out as we learn, grow, and serve together. But the church is a living, breathing organism. It is us. You look around and say, this is the church. And right now, we are worshiping, we are studying God's Word along with millions upon millions of brothers and sisters around the world that are doing the same exact thing. And then all throughout the week they're doing it, living out their Christian lives. But this book of Acts is going to give us just a glimpse into what it looked like when this whole thing started. What was it? What was happening right before it? What did Jesus say to get it all started? And then the three words that we're going to look at for this morning's message as we begin our series on Acts, the unstoppable mission of the church is these three words, power, purpose, and prayer. Now, for those of you that need a little bit of an explanation, they all start with the letter P. Did you notice that? It's good. Sometimes it can help us to remember what's going on. But as we look at bigger chunks of Scripture, which is really what we're going to do in our study of Acts, more so than the other books that we've already been through as a church, like this morning, our text is the whole first chapter. You're going to see more and more of that. Now, what we're not going to do is we're not going to go verse by verse. It would take too long. And I think perhaps um, the, the, uh, the bigger picture might get lost with a book like this. And so you're going to see us biting off bigger chunks of passages of Scripture than we have in the past. But of course what's going to happen is, as we go through this book of Acts... Themes are going to come out and topics are going to become evident. And of course, there's always going to be verses and uh, principles and theological issues that we need to highlight because what is the purpose of all this as we say we're learning it? It is not just to have a head full of knowledge about the background of the church, but it is to grow us and to change us and to transform us. And that's God's work. He does that through the power of His Word. All right? And so that's the plan that we have for going through the book of Acts together. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll get started right away into, uh, into Acts chapter 1, okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you 
for the power and the blessing of your word. And God, as you know, we're going to open it right now to, um, to this great book written by your servant Luke that tells us all about the acts of the early apostles and the, uh, the acts of your spirit and what it is that, uh, that you did to get uh, the church started. God, thank you that we have this great legacy and that we are part of that uh, great tradition and that we can look back and see the early church fathers and what they believed and how they acted and what they thought of. And, and so, Father, help us to, as best we can and, and where applicable, that we would follow their lead. But all the while, Jesus, while you, through your Spirit, lead us in heart and mind. So bless us now as we open your word together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So actually, what we're going to do is before we actually read Acts chapter 1, there's two other passages that I'd like to read that kind of set up Acts chapter 1. So a lot of Bible reading today. All right, It'll all be up on the screen for you. But uh, if you'd like, open your own Bible so you have it in your version that you're familiar with. Uh, we normally use the ESV version when we put it up on the screen. But what I want to start with is I actually want to start with Luke chapter 1. And uh, just the first few verses, the first four verses. And then after the beginning of Luke, I want to skip to the very end of Luke, the last few verses of Luke. And then it's going to lead us right into Acts chapter 1. Because the first thing to note is that the gospel writer Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And they go together. And so if you ever wanted to read through it that way, you could read through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and then right into Acts. All right. And so that's why I want to read just the very beginning and the very end of the, the gospel of Luke and you will see how it leads us right into the events of Acts 1 and why Luke is writing this. Does that make sense? It's always important to have the context and have that perspective so we know what we're, we're reading and why. So here's how Luke starts off his gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel of Luke. All right? He says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of, a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So perhaps you've read that before, but that's how Luke starts his gospel in his letter to his friend and confidant, his partner in the ministry, Theophilus. We'll talk about him in a minute. But that's how he starts his gospel. He's basically saying um, other people have written about the life and times of Jesus. He said, I thought it would be a good idea to do that too. And so through his witnesses and through his experiences and his uh, journeys together with Paul and and, uh, all that he experienced, he said, let me write this down. Because Theophilus, I think it's important, that you can be sure of the things that you have been taught. Does that make sense? So he had been teaching Theophilus. He's like, let me just give you a written version of it and uh, so you can actually, absolutely be sure. So that's how we started um, Luke. Now, Theophilus, we don't know much about him. He was obviously a believer. We're going to see more of that as we go on in Acts. He was probably a supporter of Luke's, maybe even like a supporter financially, and then, of course, prayer, and then maybe you know, being along with them, but certainly supporting Luke in his ministry. And um, 
Uh, and so it was important that we kind of have an idea of who this is. He's a, a friend and confident supporter of Luke's, and he's writing this information to him about the life and times of Jesus in the gospel. All right? And so he wrote about all that, and then when we get to Acts, you're going to see that he's still writing to him about sort of what happened next. Okay, So that's the beginning of Luke. But now let's look at the very end of Luke's gospel, because this is going to be our transition right into Acts. All right? So this is the last chapter of Luke 24, and it is uh, verses 45, 45 to 53. And he says this, the end of Luke's gospel. All right? Talking about the disciples, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's what Jesus did for the disciples. And he said to them, <clears throat> excuse me, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You can underline that or highlight that if you want your Bible. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he ends, Luke ends his gospel with the, the, the account of the ascension. Then Jesus, or he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. But while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. It's important to note their response to that. Because Jesus has said, here's what's going to happen. You're all witnesses to what happened. Um, and you are witnesses to the resurrection. And he says, now, wait for the promise that the Father's going to send you. Stay in Jerusalem. And then he ascended into heaven. Right? And that leads us right into Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> and it says this, I'm just going to read right through Acts chapter 1. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, now we have the background, right? He's saying in my gospel account, Theophilus, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That's what we just read. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, right? So he's kind of like recounting the end. You know how when you see like a, um, you know, you watch your favorite show, and then the beginning is always sort of like the end of the last one, so you can remember. That's what he's doing. Uh, he says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's what we just read at the end of Luke. Which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
and all in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. He's recounting the ascension again. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. When they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. How's that for a side note? Yeah, by the way, here's what happened. And it became, it was kind of, he was going pretty well, right? You're getting into it. He's like, okay, let me just kind of tell you what happened. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So there is Acts chapter 1. A great opening scene. Hopefully as we are reading it and you are reading the words, you can kind of get a picture of what's going on here. So of course, like I said, we can't go through every single verse, but there are some things that we certainly need to highlight to make sure that we understand exactly what he's talking about here and how how we can apply this to us as the church, because here it is, the beginning of the early church. Again, the three words you want to kind of use as your filter as we go through some of the highlights of this chapter, are power, purpose, and prayer. That's how we're going to really apply it to our lives at the end, okay? So first he says, um, in verse 1, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. I like that, and I want to highlight that, because what that means for us is Jesus began to do those works, 
but it means he's still working in us. Isn't that cool? So he began to do all those things in, in his life, and then, of course, he went to the cross on our behalf and rose again. We were just singing all about that this morning. But it's important to remember he's still alive, and he's still with us. He's still working and teaching us and transforming us. Am I right? So Jesus is still alive and well, so what he began to do, he is still doing. In verse 2, he starts to give some orders. He's telling Theophilus, he's like, you know, I dealt with all that, right? And all the stuff that it did until the day when he was taken up. And then he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to those apostles whom he had chosen, right? It's like commands or orders. Some of your versions might have the word orders. There's the first glimpse of the fact that he was giving them a plan and a purpose, right? And at first thing it was, they said, stay in Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit so they could begin preaching there. It's important. We're going to see more of that in a minute. But he is, he's re- recounting how Jesus had given the apostles a purpose and a plan and given them some orders and commands and said, just stay there, wait for the Holy Spirit, begin your ministry there. Luke twenty four forty seven. we just read it. It said that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all nations starting in Jerusalem. Okay, goes together. Verse 3, he talks about this. He's, he said, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, proofs, convincing proofs, visible, tangible, right? Where he said um, he came back for 40 days and that he was preaching to them and teaching of the kingdom of God. Now, I believe what that refers to is the coming kingdom, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ when he would return. What we have to remember is this, is that the apostles, and we see this um, just afterwards when they ask him, uh, when they say, hey, are you about to, to usher in the kingdom? The, uh, the thing to remember is this. See, they really thought and were hoping for the way that they were interpreting the Old Testament was that Jesus was going to come and establish his earthly reign right there and then, right? And so that's why they were asking, like, is now the time? Is today? Is today it? Is today it? But it says Jesus continued to teach them of the things of the kingdom. He said for 40 days he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God, okay? So it's important we keep that in context. They were kind of thinking, you know, not quite getting the whole picture. So he had to keep teaching them. Even after his resurrection, as he appeared to them, Jesus still spent time and taught them all about the kingdom. All right. And then verse 4, we get to it. He says, while staying with them, what did Jesus do? He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise. The promise is the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that unfold. All right. That um, he was giving them a plan and a purpose. But he wasn't leaving them to their own power and their own um, accord. He said, I'm going to give you the power. So let's remember that. So as Jesus calls us to follow him, he gives us a direction. He has a will and a plan for each of us. But at the same time, he doesn't just say, go ahead and try to do it on your own. He gives us the power to do what he's calling us to do. So if you're ever, if you know that the Lord is calling you to do something and you're scared to do it, just remember 
First and foremost, he's the one that gives the power. Uh, we'll skip down to verse 6. It says, in my version, it says, so. So when they had come together. Okay, That's sort of a connecting word there. Because it's saying that the Holy Spirit is coming as a sign of the coming kingdom. Again, they were reading into that and saying that they saw that the, the coming of the Holy Spirit would be a sign of the kingdom because it's all throughout the Old Testament that way. See, see, of course, the apostles, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the teachings. So when Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, they're like, this must mean the kingdom's coming, right? So that's why they go on to ask him. Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times, because they asked him, oh, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're like, this must be it, because the Holy Spirit's coming. But he says, it's not for you to know the times, right? And then here's verse 8, and uh, I think it makes sense that we uh, just kind of park ourselves for a couple of minutes on verse 8. It really is the key to this whole chapter and really to the whole book. Verse 8, so chapter 1, verse 8, look at what it says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. There again, there is the purpose and plan that Jesus has for us. He had it for the apostles, the early church, and we, it's no different for us. We are to be His witnesses. We are to be witnesses of what Christ has done for us. We are to be witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. You know, how important is that when you share your faith with other people and you tell them about your faith in Christ, you know how important that is to bring up the fact of the resurrection? Just take a step back and think about that. We believe that a man walked the earth who was actually God at the same time he was man. He predicted that he would die in our place to take away our sins, to give us forgiveness, and that also that he would come back to life. And I think sometimes we kind of say it and just kind of forget about how deep that is and how crazy that can seem to other people that we believe an actual human being was raised back to life. He predicted it and he did come back. And so that's what they were doing. He said, you know what? When they chose the next uh, apostle to replace Judas, the criteria was simply that he had to be one that was a witness to everything that happened and to the resurrection. We need somebody that's with us that was part of that so we can keep going out and telling that same story about the fact that our Lord and Savior is come back to life. right? And so he says in verse 8, a great verse to memorize, you will receive power, there's the power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then here's the, the purpose, that you will be my witnesses. All right, And then look at what he says. Where are they to be witnesses? In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know what's really cool? First of all, it gives us our marching orders. They are witnesses. We are witnesses. Witnesses to the hope that we have in Christ. But you know what? It also gives us sort of how we're supposed to do that. It also, at the same time, this verse sort of outlines the whole book. 
Because if you were to read through the whole book of Acts, and as we're going to go through it, you're going to see it starts with them being witnesses where? In Jerusalem. And then they start spreading out to areas around Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the outer parts of the earth. It's like this is how you do it. You start at home. You start with your witness and how you're living your life for Christ and sharing the hope that is within you right in your own family, right in your own uh, hometown, right in your schools and the place of business, your community to your neighbors, and then you start spreading out. And then we, you know, we, we go on missions trips and we support people around in the greater community, right? And then to the ends of the earth. That's how, that's how it flows. And that's how the whole book flows. In an orderly fashion, it's kind of like we, we have the accounts of them in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria as they're beginning to spread and we see Paul's missionary journeys and then we see it go um, out to the, to, the, uh, to the ends of the earth. Pretty cool, right? And so um, it's important to remember. So just a couple of maps I want to show you. You know that I use the word perspective a lot and uh, I like to, to bring it up because it really helps. Um, you don't have to worry about the smaller letters, but just you get an idea, okay? So, of course, you can see the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem is right under where it says Judea. I'm probably standing right in the way of some of you. Sorry, Rick. I said look, and then I stood up. And, okay. But you see Jerusalem there, right? And then look at where Judea and Samaria are. So it's kind of like start in Jerusalem and then kind of go, you know, there. Judea is mostly like the south, so go south and then go north to Samaria, right? So that's the idea, just so you have a context. And if you look at the next map, you're going to see what happens is, you don't have to worry about what all the words say, but see where those red lines are, the red arrows? That was what we were just looking at. There is Jerusalem, there's Judea a little to the south, Samaria to the north, and then to the outer reaches. Okay. And what most scholars would, would say is that when he says to the ends of the earth, at that time, well, where do you think the, really the ends of the, the known earth was? How far would they have to go? Look at... Look it up to the top left there. What country is that there? What nation is that? Italy, right? Probably to Rome. I think that's kind of, you know, that's the, the, the general thinking is that when it was to the ends of the earth, they kind of thought, well, Rome was it, you know? So the idea was like they had to cover all that land and all that. I'm sure in your study Bibles, you have lots of maps. Check them out and look at them. You probably have maps that talk about the different missionary journeys of Paul, and you'll see where he went and when. It's really cool to see. But just to kind of give you some perspective, that's what we're talking about here in the beginning of Acts. Okay? That they are to be his witnesses, right? But not doing it in their own power with the power of the Holy Spirit, starting in Jerusalem to their own people. Remember, to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. Start with your people and then move on from there. Let's also remember this. The early church was made up predominantly of Jews. Right? They were Jewish. And so now they were, as we would say, Messianic Jews, believers in Jesus as the Messiah. But the early church is predominantly Jewish, right? And they're like, we're here in Jerusalem. So Jesus says, stay there, wait for the Holy Spirit, and start with your people. Start right there in Jerusalem. And then we know later on we're going to see how God calls the Apostle Paul and said, now you've got to go take it to the Gentiles, right? That's a whole other thing. We're going to get to that. But that's where it starts, in Jerusalem with the Jews, with their brothers and sisters, and then it spreads on from there, okay? Um, and then uh, we can kind of, uh, we want to skip down because, again, we, we can't reread everything. Um, but then look at, starting in kind of in verse 12 and 13, uh, it says, they returned to Jerusalem, 
they were given these instructions, right? It's like, okay, Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. And so they do that, okay? The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. That's next week, chapter 2, Pentecost, right? This is what's happening right before that. So they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's where they were, right? Which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. It's pretty cool. Um, if you can picture it, I didn't put up a map of this. But it says a Sabbath day journey away, all right? So the Mount of Olives, or Olivet, is only um, about a, a half a mile from uh, the gates of Jerusalem, from the eastern gate, actually. So we can all picture half a mile is not that far, right? So you can actually stand on that mountain and you can see Jerusalem, right? And not that far. So a Sabbath day journey is about a half a mile. It's actually, you don't have to turn to it, but it's actually um, um, described back in uh, Numbers 35, because basically what um, what the uh, the Jewish people believed, the nation of Israel, from what uh, Jesus, um, what God laid out in Numbers 35, was that it had to be about 2,000 cubits, comes out to about a half a mile. It was basically the furthest distance they were allowed to walk on the Sabbath, as far uh, far away from home as they could go, all right? And so um, they made it a point here that uh, Luke was saying that's about how far where they were on Olivet to Jerusalem. And they could see it. Not that far, okay? It's kind of a little context there. And, um, and so that's the Sabbath day walk there, right? And so it says when they returned, they went back up to the upper room where they were staying, okay? And it names all of them, all the 11 that were there, Okay? And it says in verse 15, so Peter, in those days, he stood up among the brothers and Peter began to preach. So we also need to keep in perspective, it says there's about 120 of them. So it's not just, you know, uh, the apostles now, okay? There's about 120 people in that, in that gang. Now, there would have been more, but right there where they were in that close-knit circle is about 120. And so Peter begins to sort of preach and explain what was happening. He says in verse 16, Brothers, this this scripture had to be fulfilled, and he's talking now about Judas, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand from the mouth of David concerning Judas, who who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So he's talking about, hey, what happened with Judas, because they were probably all still kind of reeling from that, it was predicted. And then he mentions, um, he says it uh, later in verse 20, which we can go to now. Um, this is from Psalm 69 and 109, if you want to write that in your notes. He's referencing Psalms 69 and 109. That's why he says, from the mouth of David, because David wrote most of the Psalms, right? So he's basically saying, he's saying that David in the Psalms said that this is going to happen, right? So it had to happen to fulfill that prophecy, all right? The scripture had to be fulfilled. Because he says back in 17, he goes, you know, Judas was part of us he was part of our group and then in verse 18 luke gives that very wonderful and pretty picture about what happened okay just a side note there in case you're wondering and you're thinking about other references it says in verse 18 this man acquired meaning judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and then says it became known so everybody in jerusalem knew about it they named the field uh the field of blood Akeldama, okay. But we know in um, uh, in Matthew 27, it says that he hung himself. Now, it doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong. 
uh, or contradicts itself. But here's basically what happened. We also know that the priests are actually the ones um, that bought it. Because if you read that passage, and so Luke was kind of summing it up. Because you remember, what did Judas do with the, um, the silver that he got? He threw it back in the temple. Remember that? When he was just overcome with guilt, he threw it back. And then we see that in Matthew, the, the priests are just like, well, what should we do? We can't put it back into the temple you know, um, coffers because of what it was. It's like blood money, basically said. So he said, we're going to buy a field called Potter's Field. And uh, it was to bury people. And so they, the priests actually bought the field. Judas didn't do it. But it was kind of indirectly through Judas. You see that? Um, and so in, in our account, it says he fell headlong and burst open. But then in Matthew's account, it said that he hung himself. So here's probably what happened. Both happened. He hung himself and probably fell headlong, which makes sense if you're hanging. He would fall. And then, of course, after having died, and um, just imagine, we'll go into it, what, what happens to your body, right? And then he fell, and then that happened. Okay? So that's kind of the way it played out. Right? But that's the whole picture there from the, the Gospel of Matthew and then what Luke records there. But in any sense, he then, um, Luke quotes from 69, Psalm 69, 109, about what was supposed to happen. Okay? And then finally we get to the end of this passage, and then we're going to see what this really means for us. Okay? Um, it says, verse 21, that uh, one of the men who had accompanied us, we were reading this, during all this time, beginning from the baptism of John all the way until he was just taken up, he says, that's the kind of person that we need. We need a guy who was a witness to the resurrection. Really important. Okay. So they put forth two names. Yes, they prayed, but they also cast lots. It was common practice. Um, we kind of went over this in theology class, that God actually used that process. It's um, mentioned in Proverbs 16 about casting lots. So they knew the, the Old Testament. They knew Proverbs. They said, hey, let's cast lots. But it's also interesting that they prayed first, right? So I just want to make sure what that doesn't mean is that you don't go to AC and then you pray and you say, come on, Lord, and then you throw the dice, okay? That's not what they were doing, right? right? But the idea is that they left it up to God because they said in verse 24, you, Lord, know all, the, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. That they, so they were leaving it in God's hands, okay? But then um, they cast the lots, and it fell on Matthias, and he was numbered to the 11. Okay, So that's what was happening. But please, just let's just recount it this way in our last few minutes together. This is a great picture of the beginning of the church. We are the church, and we need to remember how we're connected to this. Again, as I was praying earlier, this is our legacy. This is how it all started. right? So we are not left to our own devices to figure this out on our own. We are given the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see next week in Acts chapter 2, right? When that event actually happened, when Jesus said, go and wait for the promise, we're going to see that. We're going to see that, that, that account of what that looks like. But as followers of Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, what the Bible teaches us is that immediately you are indwelt with the person of the Holy Spirit and no one or nothing could ever take him out. But here's how that works. So he indwells us to give us the power to live out the Christian life. Because we cannot do it on your own. And I think all of us can give many stories 
about how we tried to do things we even thought God was calling us to do of our own power and strength. But He indwells us. He lives within us. But then what we are called to do is to call upon Him, to allow Him to have reign over our lives. You see that? The Holy Spirit doesn't just automatically do what's best for us, right? Because we know we're still in these these earthen vessels, these imperfect bodies, right? The effect of sin in our lives has not been fully cast out yet. The eternal effect, yes, it has. Because we've been given hope and the promise of eternal life with, with Christ in heaven. But so the Holy Spirit indwells us, but we can call upon the Spirit to fill us to fill us and to lead us and to guide us into all truth. We know that the Holy Spirit is uh, given to us as the comforter, Jesus said, to comfort us in our time of need and to empower us, to illuminate the Scriptures. When we read the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, um, he He lets that light bulb go off in our head so we recognize the truth and we can see it. So we cannot live this Christian life without the guidance and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But also recognize this, that Jesus gave the apostles a plan and a purpose. And he was very specific. And in our small groups now on Tuesday and Thursday nights, we're going through a book simply called Discovering God's Will. And what does that look like? God has a plan. And he has will, right? He has his providential will. He's got his, which is what God's going to do anyway. We can read in Scripture and see what God is doing. There's God's moral will, like things like the Ten Commandments, which we're all supposed to be doing. Then He's got His personal will, what He's calling us to do personally with the gifts that He's given us and the calling on our lives individually. It's so much easier to figure out your personal will if you're spending time reading about God's providential will in His Word and things that He does and says and trying to be obedient to His moral will. You see that? And then we can figure out what His will is for our lives as we spend time with Him and connect with Him. And so God not only gives us the power to do what He's calling us to do, but He lets us know what it is. He gives us that plan. He gave them a plan and a purpose. He said, first, go to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. Okay, they did that. And then what you're going to do is you're going to be my witnesses. Start in Jerusalem, then go to Samaria, Judea, and then all the ends of the earth. That's pretty specific. He said, this is where you're going. Bet you Abraham would have liked a little bit of direction like that, right? (laughs) So he gives us a plan and a purpose, but he also gives us the power. And then finally, of course, last but not least, it says in verse 14, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were praying. So they came back together into the upper room, and what did they do? They prayed. But it says all together in one accord. And I think what what that means is that they all were understanding what was happening. They understood the importance of their purpose and the power that they were about to be given to the Holy Spirit. They were anticipating that. And so what did they do? They went right to prayer. And of one accord they prayed together. That's what we're supposed to be doing as a church, praying. We pray on our own individually throughout the day, every day. But then when we get together, we pray on Sundays. We pray. We have corporate prayer on Wednesday nights, Saturday mornings. There's lots of other times when we get together, don't we pray? We pray, right? And so as a church, we have to be known 
as a, as a, a church that prays. We have to be known uh, for those that pray. You know, um, just a couple of weeks ago, as we were celebrating uh, the life of Dorothy Beltley, and uh, you know, we were mourning her loss, our loss, and her gain. Right, man, what was she known as around here and to everybody that was sharing about her? A prayer warrior. She prayed and prayed and prayed. And she would laugh and say, you know, I'm gonna, I pray till I fall asleep. She takes her nap. Then she would wake up and keep praying. You know, I think we all do that. We've been there, right? But you pray and she would pray. She would pray for people specifically. We need to be praying. That's the, the, um, that's the model that we have. It says all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Let's take those words to heart this morning. That with one accord... We would be devoting ourselves to prayer. So we know that as the church is starting out, we just apply this to our lives, following after that example in the legacy of the early church, that God has a plan and a purpose for us. We are here as Trinity in this place for a reason. For all the years that we've been here, God still has a plan and purpose. Awesome things, I believe, for us to be doing for His kingdom. Amen? Right? But He's going to give us the power through His Spirit to do it. We need to be reading His Word so we can see what it is that God is calling us to do and stay connected with Him, stay connected with that power, but then most importantly, praying. Remembering that He's got a purpose. He's going to give us the power. But our job is to start with prayer. God, what will You have me do? We start with prayer. Let's pray. Father, God, we come to you in prayer right now. We thank you for what we have seen just in the beginning of this awesome account of um, the, the spread of Christianity and the unstoppable mission that you have put your church on. Thank you, God, that that uh, mission has never ended, that the church, the local church, is still the means by which you choose to establish your kingdom and to spread the gospel of hope and of peace. Thank you, God, that we are your church, living and breathing, and that you continue to build us, as you said you would, Lord Jesus, as our head and as our guide, that we would always look to you, not to ourselves first, but to set our minds on things above where you are, that we would get our marching orders from you, our plans and our purposes from you, that we would always rely upon your power to do all those things you call us to do, and that we would always be bathing them in prayer, devoting ourselves in one accord, as one voice and one heart, devoting ourselves to prayer. God, move us to do that always, to always keep this model in mind whenever we get together. And that, God, we just look forward to the amazing, awesome things that you're going to do to bring glory to yourself and to bring salvation to many through us, even despite us. But God, we want to be here and be available for you, just as the apostles were. When you call us to wait, give us the strength and the patience to wait. When you call us to go, give us the courage to go. And through it all, help us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.